And we're back for another episode of Startup Hustle, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you want to start, own, or build a business, then you're in the right place. We bring you the real truth about what it's like to take something from concept to launch. From growth, innovation, experience, failing, or winning big, we've got you covered. So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. And we're back. Another episode of Startup Hustle. Matt DeCourcy here with Jason Morris, who'll be sitting in for Matt Watson today. Jason, what's up? Uh, it's good to see you here, Matt. I'm- yeah, and good to hear you as well. Yeah. Yeah, but Jason and I can see each other, but we decided prior to recording that we both have faces made for radio, so we won't be publishing the video. Uh, sorry to throw you under the bus there, buddy. <laughs> um, now, before I, before I get into what we're going to talk about today and who you are, today's episode of Startup Hustle is brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software development team quickly and affordably. With me today, as previously mentioned, is Jason Morris, who is currently the managing partner of the Morris Consulting Group, but also a successful startup founder who exited uh, Employee Screen IQ in 2015 for an amount that we don't mention. So, um, and that's all we'll say about that. But you are an expert at employee screening, startup founding. You act and work as an angel investor. Uh, you are someone that I call a friend outside of the podcast, and at your uh, young age, you've also uh, are a, a rock and roll band manager. So um, we might have to turn this into a series, but I think at first, if you could just get what's your backstory, dude? Like, who is Jason Morris? So I've got a pretty interesting backstory. I, I grew up uh, with a father who was a private investigator and, and owned a security business. So. Uh, when I was five years old, uh, I'd, I'd run up driveways with my father and get license plate numbers for him. So I've been around investigations uh, my whole life. Um, I've always loved it. I always thought that I would either be a copper or go into uh, private investigations. Um, so I went to Kent State University and I graduated in 95. And my plan was to go work for my father, which I did. Um, probably two days after graduation, I started full time with him. Uh, we had sold the security business and focused strictly on domestic investigations, and locating lost friends and relatives. Uh, back then, there was a really cool company advertising all over the place called 1-800-US-SEARCH. And it was, you can find any of your you know, old friends, relatives. We did a lot of adoption work. Business never really took off. Um, and working with my father was rather difficult. So towards the end of the 90s, around 98, I decided to leave his company. And there was this new concept out there of screening your employees, which was very investigative in nature. And I saw a lot of prospects for it. So I did a lot, bunch of research. I talked to some people that were already doing it. Um, and it was a very, very new industry. I mean, hard, there was hardly any pure background screening companies at that point. There might have been one or two of them. Uh, so at that point, I launched a company called Background Information Services in the end of 99. Uh, and I started with my, on my own. Um, and about three to four months in, I decided that I really needed to raise some capital. So I raised a very little bit, little amount of money uh, just so I can open an office and, and start maybe looking at hiring some people. Um, so I did that and I brought in a partner, which was great because I didn't know much about running a business, uh, but I knew how to do how to build a business. 
Um, so my partners, um, Les and Nick, Les uh, is you know quite. He's probably seventy five now. Um, you know, he had owned many businesses throughout his career. So I had this business guide uh, to help me build that part of the business. And and then I had Nick, who was my main partner as well. And, and Nick ran all of our marketing. And so we had this three-legged stool. I was operations, he was marketing, he was finance. Um, so the business, we, we, we said from the beginning that we were going to make smart decisions. Um, and the things that we, the decisions we made today, we knew would affect us down the road. So we made very principled um, educated decisions um, for anything that we did. We also decided. What's an, example, what's an example of one? Sorry to cut you off, but what's an example of one of those? Because you say like most people don't start with a plan and say, I'm going to make I'm going to make smart decisions. That's pretty yeah. general, but you have a lot of experience. So, I mean, what, what are a couple of those and then continue on with the timeline? So the best one that comes to mind was when we first hired a couple of people, we needed a phone system, right? Back then you needed a phone PBX system. And the system that we were looking at, um, I think you could have eight channels in it. And we said, you know, it was a lot of money. It was probably 40 or 50 grand at the time. Um, and, you know, my partner said to me, he goes, look, you know, we're really growing this company. Do you think that this is going to support us if we do what we want to do and accomplish what we want to accomplish two years from now? And I'm like, no way. So we ended up buying one that was twice as expensive that allowed for our growth. So it was making little calculated decisions like that. Um believing in ourselves and believing in what we were going to do. Um, and we, we took that, that principle and really applied it to almost every aspect of the business when we built it. Um, the other thing that we did, and this is very rare, and I can say this confidently 25 years later, um, we said from day one that if the three of us didn't agree, we weren't going to do it. If you couldn't convince the other two or the other one, it just wasn't going to happen. Um, and in 17 years in having the business, we had one fight and it was about a parking space and one of our employees that was going to get that parking space. Um, so I think, you know, planning these things and having these, these discussions early on is, is really wise and really important. Um, so after we started the business, uh, we began to grow fairly quickly because in the news, you know, almost every week you would see a story about workplace violence, you know, going postal quote unquote, um, you know, Companies were being sued for negligent hiring for things that happened in the workplace. So the, the concept of screening your employees was really starting to get traction around 2000, 2001. And comp I think at, the, at that time, maybe 20% of companies were screening their employees and they weren't even screening everybody and nothing was being done consistently. Then 9-11 hit. And 9-11 you know, you, put the country in a pretty deep recession at that time. But for us you know, screening your employees weren't going to stop planes from flying into buildings, but everybody became very security conscious at that point. And I remember, you know, specifically, I, I travel a ton and I go to New York to visit with a client. Pre 9-11, you want to visit a client in a high rise, you walked to the elevator, you walked up to the, you know, you took the elevator up to their floor and you, and you met with the person. After 9-11, everything was check your ID at the door. He had another person walking to the elevator. So security became the concept of security in corporations became really important. And screening your employees was one of the most important things because when you're setting up a program, your people are your biggest liability. So the concept just really took off. So our business exploded, no pun intended, after 9-11. And uh, we really started to grow. And probably the smartest thing that we did is shortly after that, um, was something that doesn't happen very often in most industries. And I, I, I approached my competitors and I said, look, we're all doing the same thing. 
Um, if, if we don't figure out how to regulate ourselves, we're going to get regulated by the government. Same thing happened with polygraph uh, searches in the 80s and, and the credit industry. It, it just what naturally happens. So I got together with my, my competitors and we pioneered and helped form our industry association, which is now called PBSA. It's huge now. Um, because of that, I was on the board in the beginning. I was chairman for a very long time and on the board for a very long time, but became an evangelist for the industry. So anytime the Wall Street Journal, or the New York Times, or anybody was writing an article about background screening or an incident that happened, Jason Morris was the one they called. So that was what happened. What really helped, um, uh, you know, V-shape you know, V-shape curve for the company, um, and we really took off. So because of that, my name became very well known. I, I, I built a brand for myself, and uh, you know that's what actually ended up leading to us getting called to be acquired, which I'll get to in a second. Um, business kept growing. Our clients were all over the world. Uh, we had client like one of our largest clients in 2004 was a Kuwaiti company. Uh, that was uh, doing all of the procurement for the U.S. military in the Middle East. They had 35,000 employees who were screening all of them. So we had clients like that all the way up to, I did all the McDonald's stores in the U.S., uh, United Airlines, Continental Airlines, Live Nation, House of Blues, um, some of the biggest companies in the world were our clients, Walmart. Um, so, you know, our name became synonymous with background screening. Our brand was huge. Um one of the ways we really grew our brand was taking a leap of faith around 2005. And that was our competitors were out there doing podcasts like this and doing webinars and doing white papers, but they were doing them just for their clients and they were restricting them just to their clients. What we decided to do, and this is the brilliance of my partner, Nick, is we started becoming the educators of the entire marketplace. All of our webinars were free for everybody. All of our podcasts were free for everybody. All of our white papers were you know, thrown out there for everybody. And what happened was all of our competitors' clients were benchmarking them against us and stuff that we were writing. So we now had a seat at the table all the time. So if they're doing an RFP or they're bringing in a new background screening vendor, employee screen IQ was always brought to the table because they were reading our stuff on a daily basis. The result of that was our SEO was number one because of all the content we were putting out there. So any term for background screening, we popped up number one or two on Google. Uh, we were the go-to people for the media and we're the go-to people for the, for the market. So it really worked well. Um, when that first started, you know, we got invited to a lot of RFPs. We didn't win a lot of them. Then we learned how to win, win a lot of them. And then we learned how to present better. And then we learned how to close deals better. So it was a whole uh, metamorphosis uh, through that process. Um, in 2007, we changed our company name to Employee Screen IQ. We rebranded uh, from Background Information Services. There was a, a small company in Colorado that had the same name. Um, and we didn't want to be pigeonholed into that if they ever did something wrong or, you know, something happened with the, on the compliance side that people would think it was us. So we changed the name, which gave us another springboard to rebrand the company. And then fast forwarding to 2014, um, I got a call from uh, the largest company, the CEO of the largest company in the industry, a company called Sterling. Um, and the CEO I've known for 10 years at the point called me in and goes, look, he goes, this isn't public yet. He goes, but Goldman Sachs is buying us for over a billion dollars. And we need to make a very impactful acquisition, and it's got to be you. So uh, we said no. We had no interest in it. Um, but we let them kick the tires, and going back and forth a few times, they finally made us an offer we couldn't refuse, and we, we sold the business. Um, it was, it was uh, something we never intended on doing. And, and, but you know, it comes to a point where 
you become an idiot not to. <laughs> so um, we did that. I worked for Sterling for about 16 to 18 months. I was on the M&A side. I did a lot of clients, um, client work. Um, and I, and I, I have such a passion for the industry that I wanted to stay involved. So after I left, I tried retiring, playing golf every day, um, got really bored pretty quickly. I'm here in Cleveland. So you can only do these things four or five months a year. Uh, I started doing some consulting, um, cause I know everybody in the industry and everybody knew me that they would start to call me to do some recruiting and do some, you know, process consulting and supply chain management, stuff like that. So got into that, um, do a lot of expert witness work as well. And, uh, the recruiting and the consulting. That's a long story. So when it comes, no, 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 that was a good one. I mean, you know, and it's, uh, I'm not always that quiet, but there's, I mean, obviously a long path there and you went through a lot of different stuff. Like you mentioned, it's, uh, it's good to know that your, that your acquisition offer was, um, adequate enough that you can say, okay, I'm dumb to not take this. We've had this conversation on the podcast with quite a few people. Um, I, I often refer to that first acquisition offer as that first sleepless night. And if you stay awake after that offer and you're like, fuck, I can't sleep. And this is clear. I'm dumb. It's life changing. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of things that we can do in life as entrepreneurs and, you know, I'd never, you know, it is what it is. So, okay. So background screening, this is, I, you know, I didn't realize that prior to 2001 or in that time frame that that wasn't something that most people did. Yeah. Um, it, it was a newer concept, you know, typically in the past, if you owned a business and you wanted to bring on an executive, you know, you had a buddy that worked at the sheriff's department or a friend that had a friend that worked at the police station that would, you know, quote unquote, check somebody out for you. Um, but it wasn't really widely used. And it was actually more of a security thing than an HR thing. It wasn't until like early in the 2000s that it shifted from being um, a security concept to an HR concept. So for the for the modern startup and for, you know, those of us listening and, and here's another thing, too, is is, you know, we have listeners, 190 countries. So, you know, at our, at the full scale office in the Philippines, we run a specific type of background check there, which is different than something we do here. But why is this important for startups in general or just businesses as a whole? Like what are, you know, we always talk about features, advantages, and benefits of anything, but what are the, I mean, obviously other than trying to keep crooks, out. I mean, o overall, how does how does this benefit a startup? And why do you strongly recommend that everybody embrace this process? So it's funny, because that, that's a conversation that I don't have very often, uh, because we don't have those conversations anymore, because everybody does. It. Everybody understands usually that background checks are important. But when when we had to spend time convincing people, it was more so because, you know, I'll, I'll use an antiquated uh, analogy. But you remember, you know, you bought your first fax machine when you opened your business and you did research, like you opened up a catalog, the Office Max catalog, you found the best one for your business, you made sure that it was under warranty, you made sure it worked well for your, what you're looking to do, and then you made the purchase. And, and people did that with a lot of purchasing decisions, but they bring an employee on and just take them at their word. They get a resume from them, they might call a reference or two without realizing that a resume is nothing more than a sales tool. It's somebody telling you exactly what you want to hear. Um, and employees are one of your biggest liabilities. Now, for a big company, if some if you hire somebody and they steal from you, or they steal product, or they take a box out and put it by the dumpster and take it home, or even if they steal a million dollars from you and you're a big company, you know what? You'll get over it. it you're, you're, you have insurance, all these things. You can remediate the problem. 
no problem. When you're a smaller business, it can be devastating. Um, I mean, you can lose out on you know a, a few thousand dollars. It can impact you for months. Uh, somebody steals product or prototypes of something. It could, it could damage your business. And then you have the reputational risk. You know, your reputation is something you can never recover from. So if you hired somebody and they sexually harass somebody at your office or abuse somebody and it makes the paper, I mean, try digging yourself out of that one when you could have spent $50 to get a good background check on them if they, if they had something in their past. So it's really just doing the due diligence on your people the same way you would with anything else. When we did this, we did a lot of, like I told you before, a lot of publishing and a lot of uh, article writing. And a lot of it was based on stats that we had found from our business. 52% of people that we screened lied on their resume. I mean, that's a big number. And, and the lies, there was a threshold for what's a lie. You know, 90 days off in your dates of employment is, is a threshold. Um, and, you know, over 10% uh, on your salary, that's a threshold. Any difference in the title is a threshold. So we would count things only at that threshold and half the people were lying. And then we had, you know, 15% of the people had criminal records. Did they mean you wouldn't hire the person? No, but it means that you didn't know something about that person that you want, you would want to know for your business. I, I think for myself, the a background check gives me a decent glimpse into your character. And on some levels, well, I'll give you an example. Um, you know, you know, people, okay, people change. And, you know, I turned 45 this year and I didn't always make the best decisions and I don't always still make the best decisions, but I don't have theft and other stuff in my history. I'm not wired that way. I'm not, I just can't, I, you know, it's not something that I'm built to do. It's not something that's in my character profile. And I just have this belief that that's something that people are capable of or not. And, and, you know, if you see a history of that, I mean, that's obviously a huge red flag because if people feel comfortable stealing in the past, they're highly likely to do that in the future. Um, and then sometimes it's just a glimpse into just people's overall decision making ability. You're like, wait a minute. Well, I had a guy once that had been arrested for running on a field at a, a sporting event. Right. That doesn't tell me that you're a good decision maker. Like, really? Like, you were that guy? Because that's not the guy I want to hire. Well, and, every, you know, every, just like goofy, goofy shit like that. Yeah, yeah. But, it, but everything has a reason. And every everything that you find in a background check should be considered. Um, you know, and the mm -hmm. EOC is big on that. And so is the FTC. Like, there's a lot of regulation around what we can and can't use. Yeah. The character thing, you know, it, it's, it's important. And it's also important to understand context. And the example I like to use is, you know, if somebody has a disorderly conduct on their record, what does that mean? That can mean anything from them being drunk in college and pissing on a stop sign, or it can mean they stood up in a movie theater and yelled fire. Two very different things. Two, you know, it, so that's why those things are become very, very important when you're when you're screening your employees. Um, but one employee can sink your your entire operation very, very easily. It's happened many times. Yeah. And, you know, for us, and I mentioned, you know, doing international screening as well. It's like we it's it is a character thing for us, definitely, because full scale deals with a lot of different companies that do a lot of different stuff that they could have access to things, just whatever you can imagine there, intellectual property, stuff like that. And, you know, there's a different. OK, you mentioned the the resume. Uh, internationally often referred to as CV, curriculum mm -hmm. vital, yeah. I don't know, something in Latin. But, you know, the CV, now now in the Philippines, they actually certify you on your way out of a job. 
meaning like that meant like you weren't fired for being a thief. You worked out your, uh, your notice you left as a good citizen. And that's actually, and we don't do that here, but that's something like when we go to hire developers at full scale, we'll see. And if someone's missing that, it's a huge red flag. It's a huge red flag. And for our employees that have departed to go on and do other things, they're very particular about wanting that because they realize that that's a, that's a flag. Now with that, we've created a culture here in the U S where, okay, so when I, it's been forever, but when I did actually work for other people, um, you know, there was one company I worked for. It's like, Hey, if someone calls about a reference, you need to just kick them back to the HR department and the HR department would have done nothing other than say, yes, that person worked here between those dates. Right. And, you know, the, the world's afraid to get sued. And, you know, and, and so how valid is that fear? And, uh, you know, like, I, I don't know. I mean, cause, cause like I said, that, that kind of kills the idea of calling about a reference. Yeah. So references and verifications are two di- very different things. So um, when somebody puts down three or four references on their resume of people they can call, obviously it's people they're going to say good things about them. So one way you can do that is you can call those people, but then ask, ask those people, is there anybody else they might've worked with that you could talk to? So you can develop some references that way and, and get more information. But on the verification side, you're right. Most companies just give name, rank, and serial number and validate the name, rank, and serial number. But you'd be surprised. Again, 52% of those people still lied. And a lot of that comes down to, and you, you, you alluded to it before, um, you know, I don't know, you know, your full history, but like I've been broke, I've been on unemployment, but I've never been desperate. And when people are desperate, they do desperate things. So if you can't get a job and you can't feed your family, you'll probably fudge your resume. You'll probably put that you had a position making a lot more money to make yourself more desirable. Or if you had a criminal record and you're going to obviously lie about it so you can get a job that you want because you're desperate. So that's what we're trying to do. And we're not trying to stop people from getting jobs. We're just making sure that people are in the right places when they get that job. Because just because you have something on your history doesn't mean that you shouldn't be working. Everybody deserves a job. I'm curious how the employers of the world are looking at cannabis right now. Because I'll give you an example. I mentioned I'm old. Um, I'm old. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not using I'm not using myself as the example, but you look at something that like 20 years ago was like they throw you in jail for and now you can walk into a store and buy like I'm, I'm curious, does that disqualify you like you say, hey, you can't be arrested for something and you know but that's legal now like how how does that how is that viewed it's a tough rub i mean you know a lot of states are actually you know i do a lot of we do a lot of drug testing in this industry because in order to do background screening you have to offer that service as well so it's probably about for most background screening companies that's probably 10 percent of our businesses um most states have actually uh, uh made it so you can't use marijuana against somebody in a conviction or any, any type of marijuana conviction or the fact that they fail a drug test, you can't be used against them. But a company can still decide that they want to do that as a, as a matter of policy um, if there's no state law. So it's all based on really what the company you know desires. A lot of companies that I talk to, they just know they won't be able to hire anybody if they drug test for, for marijuana. Um, it's becoming more socially acceptable. Um, as is the concept of, you know, the concept of not hiring people because they have uh, a criminal background is also becoming socially unacceptable because now we're creating this other class of people that have you know records that can't get jobs and people need to get jobs. So we're seeing a, a, a resurgence of 
companies that are giving second chances to people. But because of that, they still need to protect their companies. So there's these new products that are out there that you can monitor your employees. And if they get arrested or convicted while they're working for you, we can also let you know. So there's a backstop almost if some of these things are, are to happen. So you'll give them a chance. You know, and like you mentioned that the, some of these things are changing, like uh, cannabis is a tricky subject because it's legal in some states, but illegal federally. And, you know, I, I've uh, often been approached to be advisors, uh, being on advisory boards or different stuff. And, you know, for those of you that aren't familiar, it's common to find people that are experienced. You give them some options or a small ownership piece. They act as an advisor. It's a better version than a board of directors for a lot of people. But um, I've been offered advisorship in a couple different cannabis businesses. And uh, one of them, I just didn't think was good. Another one would have been fine, but I turned it down because I might have to attest to not being involved with any businesses that have some kind of federal liability, which could have excluded me like, okay, what if full scale wants to go public in, in two years? And where at that point I wouldn't be able to pass an SEC filing or I'd have to ditch that or something. And, you know, these are, there's weird things that you have to consider. And then also, it, you know, like your involvement in some of that, and maybe you can confirm this, but you, okay. So the, the root of so much of this background screening, I believe started around uh, federal, you have law enforcement, maybe high level hires and stuff like that. Um, which, you know, like I said, you're going to, I've signed things, I attesting to the fact that I'm not involved in anything or haven't been or this stuff. And, you know, you being involved or being in, as simple as maybe being an advisor in a business like that could end up excluding you from other things down the road, ownership, loans, filings. I don't know, dude, like you just pick it. And until they get that straightened out, like that's, is that a, is that a, a valid reality for some people? It is. And it was, you know, to be honest with you, it was a valid reality for me for a very long time. I mean, I was in the drug testing business and the background screening business. And then, you know, three years ago with two of my two other partners, I was opening a weed cafe in West Hollywood, California. Um, I was, you know, one of the investors and we were trying to get a license. And I had to say to myself, look, you can probably never get back into background screening if this thing happens. We never got the license. Yep. Um, it was very competitive. But, you know, I was in a different position. I had sold my business. I'm set for life. I don't have to worry about getting a job. So if somebody doesn't want to do something with me because I was in a marijuana business a couple of years ago, like, I don't care. <laughs> but for a lot of other people, it's a big concern and the stigma is still there. Yeah. And that's the thing is like, I think, and you know, that's, that's why I kind of threw up that pause sign at the beginning of the episode. Cause you say, it's easy to say, Hey, we're going to build our business around making good decisions. Okay. I hope so. Yeah, I hope so. But, but, and you know, but what are those? And, and so many things are written in cement, ink, uh, sometimes tattooed. It depends on what it is. And, and that can also relate to the people that you're doing business with. Um, I, I, that's always a tricky thing. It's not necessarily a background screening, but you know, it's not uncommon at full scale for us to have to exclude ourselves from doing business with other people to get business from someone. And, you know, all these things like you start that what it, we spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to not make things go wrong. And I see too many people not giving enough consideration to what they're going to do if things go really well. Yep. So it's just it's weird how you kind of leave that trail. And, you know, if you're building software, it's often refer referred to as technical debt. 
Um, you know, and these are other things too. So, all right. So overall, when in, in the screening industry, you know, it's, I get with the background stuff, you know, the, some of the, I, I did a little research cause you know, Jason, I wasn't going to show up unprepared, especially <laughs> to talk to you because I knew I was going to be so outmatched that I had to be prepared, but you know, our, I, I found some info related to like new trends, like continuous monitoring. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's actually something I hadn't really considered. So like, you know, if I pass a background check six years ago and I'm working for you, that doesn't mean that I haven't done some really stupid shit on the way up till today. Is that, is that something, uh, social media screening, um, different types of drug testing. And, you know, also like you, and you had mentioned, I found some information about, hiring trends changing about not necessarily excluding everyone for certain histories. But yeah, the continuous monitoring and social media, I think are interesting. Um, I think too many people don't, don't understand how easy it is to find you right. on the internet and go, wow, that's, I wanted to hire this person. And now I see what it, wow. So there, <laughs> there's two, there are two very different animals with monitoring and social media. And I'll explain um, monitoring the concept's been around for a long time. The technology's been around for a long time, and nobody's really embraced it until now. And the reason it's being embraced is just like I said before, the concept of not hiring people because of a criminal record is becoming more socially unacceptable. The social justice warriors are out there, you know? So giving somebody a chance that might've had a theft seven years ago, or might've had, you know, something even more serious, or even less serious a couple of years ago, monitoring allows you to have that a little bit of insurance uh, that you're still watching um, within means, um, but there's be, there's become a lot of monitoring products that have come to market in the last couple of years. One is criminal monitoring. You can do arrest monitoring. You can monitor their driver's license. Uh, you can monitor um, uh, so some of the licenses that they might have. If they're a nurse or a doctor, there's exclusion databases you can you can monitor. Uh, so there's all kinds of products out there that are now emerging. The problem in the industry is. Most background screeners, most of the guys in this business have been in this business for 20 years, and they don't know how to innovate. They just don't know how to sell product. They don't know how to invent new products. They're comfortable with what they're doing, and they don't want to charge their clients any more than they have to because they think it's going to become a red flag. So it's the newer people that are entering the marketplace that are figuring these things out, and everybody else is following along. The concept of social media, you'd think, hey, I'm just going to Google the person or go on their Facebook page. The problem with doing that is it's a highly regulated industry. Nothing that we do as background screeners is covert. When you're doing an investigation, it's covert, right? They don't know you're doing it. When you're doing a background investigation for employment purposes, it's overt. They're signing a release. They're telling you you can do this. They're giving you all their information so you can do that. So, you know, I'm sorry, you can hear my dog barking. Um, you know, all right. It went well with the whole investigation yeah. thing because you know, I'm like picturing the dogs being put on on someone. Right. Um, we've had all kinds of back, speaking of background stuff. We've had music, phones, cars, lawnmowers, jackhammers, um, people, wives. Yeah, name it. Yeah. So we're we're from a background perspective here on the podcast. That's not the first. Okay. Good. Um, so, you know, with, with social media, it's, it's such a highly regulated industry that the information has to have what's called maximum possible accuracy. Um, so I'll give you an example. 15 years ago, Facebook started emerging. I think it would be subjective, too. 
it's very yeah, there's like a subjectivity too like because yeah, yeah. like there's not a standard i can't i can't put a standard on whether you i don't know you get it like is this distasteful or not what who, who are you asking well the, so the example i the example i love to use is you know when facebook first became big i had a client call me and say we just found a picture of one of our executives snorting cocaine off the roof of a car so of course i knew it was probably bs um because you know what what can you tell from a picture did some digging tell me a bad judgment regardless of if, if it was real or not you shouldn't be in that picture well here's the here's the story though this guy was a model and he was doing an ad for a drug free for, for a drug free promotion or something and he that was part of his job and it was on his facebook site or somebody found it somewhere so you just don't know so if you can't be accurate you know i could i could i could download your facebook and, and, and show you some things that you wrote. And all you have to say to me is that's not me. If I can't prove it to you or I can't prove it was you in that situation, then I can't legally report it. And if I do legally report it and you dispute it, if I can't prove it, I got to take it off. So how valid is it? Now, if somebody's up on their Facebook page and they're, they're, they're putting a Nazi salute out and they're, they're writing things down that are obvious, that's a different story. Um, the issue becomes with negligent hiring because the negligent hiring doctrine says if you could have known, you should have known. What does that mean, though? Are you supposed to monitor everybody's Twitter and Facebook, all your employees in real time because they said they might come to work the next day and, and injure somebody? Like, so what's reasonable there? So you have to worry about reasonableness of your procedures as well. So there's all kinds of legal, federal legal things that you have to follow when you're doing it. But I can tell you with, you know, with certainty that just an HR person looking at somebody's Facebook page and using that to make a decision is disastrous. Um, and not having a policy against it could really put you in peril. Because if I don't hire somebody and I don't have a policy, they're gonna, they could say to me, they could sue me and say, you didn't hire me because you saw I was pregnant on my Facebook page. And that's why you didn't hire me. Even though I never looked at their Facebook page. But I don't have a policy saying that I can't, I'm not doing that. I'm not supposed to be doing that. So, it, you know, there's a lot of things that an employer has to put in place in order to protect themselves there. Yeah. And, you know, as mentioned, that subjectivity, because, and that's why, you know, we have, we have a policy and it's not necessarily like a true policy, but we don't talk about religion, politics, or sex. Those are all no-nos mm -hmm. uh, with, with each other or with clients or potential clients or anybody when we're representing the company, because overall the, the statistics show that we have, you have a remarkably higher chance of pissing someone off than getting them on your squad. Cause these are things that are people, well, first off the sex part just shouldn't be at work. Right. But the other two is like, you know, you're just not, you know, you, the chances that you are in perfect alignment with me on any of that stuff is almost zero. And then it's a really high probability that I'm going to say something. You talk about judgment, like you, someone could really be on one side politically and you're like, yeah, I'm super liberal. And they're like, fuck you. I'm not doing business with you. Right. So there's, like I said, that level of subjectivity and you can avoid it. It's uh, you're, you're talking about photos online and well before social media and really even the internet was a thing. I remember like, and you know, like I mentioned, you know, you're 20, 21, you're doing stupid shit, but I was always really particular to not be in pictures with like 
I don't know, drinking, just doing yeah. dumb shit. Cause I always was like, and I never had any ambitions for this, but I was like, what if I want to run for president, mm-hmm. which you can get away with all kinds of shit now and run for president. Right. But at the time that was like one dumb picture might've excluded you from that. And I, I, you know, then you have some people that are the exact opposite, you know? And it's like, I mean, I wouldn't put like posting pictures of themselves passed out wasted pulling bong hits doing blow or something you're like fuck dude you are not doing yourself a favor another thing people don't understand is you're one click of a settings button away from letting the internet index that for you which makes it real hard to get rid of like once it's out there like good luck you know like good luck and one thing you can do google yourself Google yourself and then click photos and see what comes up. And you're going to get a real good impression of what other people would see. Cause I can't imagine hiring someone and not Googling them. Yeah. You know, just cause I just like, like I said, I just want, like, I want to see if you're a fucking Nazi or like, if it's like, you know, John Smith steals millions, (laughs) you know, company dies, you know, and you're like, wait a minute, it's the same person. And, you can find out some real weird stuff and, and without needing background screen, well, the you know, and then you get into a whole nother depth. It's like, wow. The best way to do it though, is if you're going to do that is to have a third party do it for you because it creates that firewall and it doesn't give you that subjectivity. So you would tell your screening firm, I'm looking for these five things. And if they find them, they're going to do more investigation into them to make sure that there's something that you would want to use against them. So so at, at what point, what's a, what's a big no-no? Like what's something our, our, our startup hopefuls, our younger, less experienced entrepreneurs, what's just a couple things that you need to know when it comes to screening? Like, I mean, either something to look for, something to make sure, like you just mentioned, like have a third party do it because it's, it's an intermediary or just something like what, what are a couple can't miss, you know, do's or don'ts here? Well, you first want, you want to, you want to hire a third party because you don't want to be in in the business of the compliance part of of the background screening. So you want to make sure you're having a third party doing it for you. And for for the same reason that, you know, if if your toilet breaks, you call a plumber, you don't try to fix it yourself. Um, the, The second thing is, is to make sure that you are reviewing all the materials from your vendor, because there's certain releases that have to be filled out and you have a legal obligation on a lot of things as an end user on that information. Um, and I would, and I would, and I would listen to your screening firm as far as the compliance things, cause you can get yourself in trouble. Um, and the third thing would be to make sure that you're not, you know, spending money in the wrong places on that background check. You want to look for the things that are important to you. Did they lie in their application? Do they really have the degree they say they had? I mean, I told you before that 52% of people lie about their past jobs, but like the number of people that lie about their degrees is like 30%. It's high. So if that didn't Okay, fine, Jason. I'm not really a doctor. <laughs> all right. I get the point. I'm not really a doctor. If that is that it, there, it's well, out we there. We found those all we found those all the time. I mean, you can't see it because we're on audio, but right behind me, I've got I've got my PhD and my and my master's degree that are fully verifiable. I can give you a one eight hundred number and a fake student ID that you can call and validate that I have a PhD. But I bought it online for three hundred dollars in Japan and I paid an extra hundred dollars. So you can call this call center and validate my degree. I mean, I have them hanging on my wall. Um, To make a point, we find these things as screeners all the time. They might sound extraordinary to you. We found sex offenders every single day. 
we found lawyers that didn't have law degrees every single day. So it happens and it happens a lot. Yeah. And you know, I mean, that's the thing too, is, is you get busy. I think that's the thing that also in an early stage company, and we've talked about that a lot, you know, you have, okay. So if you have four people in your company and one of them's a turd, that means 25% of your company sucks. Yep. So overall, there's a lot to consider when it comes to background screening employees. And thanks for that input there. You know, I think one of the things that um, really needs to, you need to take in consideration too, that, I, that I've run into, well, not necessarily run into, but you never know when you're going to have to attest or provide some of this information to a potential client or user. And um, if all of a sudden here comes the dream contract your business has been waiting for and they want to, you know, whoever you're doing business with wants to see some of that information and you're like, uh, hang on, we got to get it or it's dated yesterday. Uh, eh, it can, it can say a little bit about, you know, some of it. And, you know, I think, I think that that's something to consider now, once again, with us today, Jason Morris, a guy who does a lot of stuff. <laughs> so we'll, we'll kind of call it, leave it at that. But yeah, you know, we, we end episodes of startup hustle, what we, what we call the founders freestyle. And you've been successful doing a lot of different things. And, um, you know, whether you have entrepreneurial ADD or not is yet to be determined. Uh, but what, what's some, and I have no problem with that, by the way, but <laughs> what's a little, what's it just, I'll give you a little freestyle session here to just kind of drop a to drop a little knowledge for the founders or future founders out there. Like what's, what's a couple of things you've learned about being an entrepreneur that are just really, really, that are laws, not lessons at this point. So uh, one is what I said earlier, which is the decisions that you make today are going to affect you in one way or another down the road to so make sure it's a smart decision. Um, the second thing is, and this is something I learned actually after I sold my business from kind of a mentor at the new business I had, who I still talk to on a regular basis, but it was a quote he gave me. And the quote ends with luck is the residue of design. Now, if you know who said that, I'll, there's bonus points, but the entire quote, don't. it's Branch Rickey. Do you know what Branch Rickey was? Oh yeah. 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 So Branch Rickey said things worthwhile generally don't just happen. Luck is a fact, but should not be a factor. Good luck is what's left over after intelligence and effort have combined at their best. Negligence or indifference are usually reviewed from an unlucky seat. The law of cause and effect and causality both work at the same in, in ex, inexorable exitudes. Luck is a residue of design. What does that mean? You're not going to get lucky. You got to work your ass off. You got to work hard. You got to be diligent. You got to make sure that you have focus. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. So, it, you know, the luck is something, but it's not everything. Um, so that was advice that I got that that I that, that has stuck with me for the last couple of years. Um, and the last thing I think for entrepreneurs that are listening to your podcast probably understand this, but my generation of entrepreneurs probably didn't. And that's the access to capital. It's probably the most important thing that companies and startups don't realize the value of long-term. Um, you cannot grow a business without capital. You're not going to get by. You're not just going to grow it organically. I mean, it could happen, but overall, you need access to people and capital that you wouldn't have otherwise had in order to help you grow. It's never going to be just you. Well stated, sir. Now, yeah, I'm going to... I'll 
for my freestyle, I'm going to parlay off what you said. First off, uh, luck is just preparation and opportunity at an intersection. Um, and I've had people that are like, yeah, well, what about the guy that won the lottery ticket? Yeah, he prepared by buying a ticket. Yep. And then the drawing was the opportunity. I mean, there's, and sure, there's a one in a million or there's something out there. You can argue it, but uh, don't look for that one in a million. You want the 999,999. Don't be the other one. It's like they say David versus Goliath. And the, and the other versions of that being untold, he got squashed underfoot, you know? So, uh, you know, luck isn't something you should, you should be relying on. And I don't believe in it. I don't think that I, I really do think that you, you, I, well, we We've talked to people here on the podcast that uh, one of them was Kylie Nichols, the founder of, of Nickel and Suede, and she's built this amazing business. And she said, well, I, some, I, I had been blogging for eight years before I somehow became an overnight sensation. You know, and it's just like, you know, that whole thing. It's like there's a grind to anything yeah. and everything that gets put in it. I like to say that success demands payment in advance. So start writing those checks, um, you know, and then, and, Really, in the end, that I, I think that access to capital is a big thing. I've seen too many people wait too long. Um, they you, people think they're going to raise money and do a round and find investors and do it like in weeks. Yep. And it's you need to be thinking more in like quarters and months. And I've just talked to too many people, and unfortunately, a lot of them are are reaching out for our our services at Full Scale, which once again today's episode is brought to you by FullScale.io, helping you do stuff. But you know, they're like, you say, "Well, I'm I'm trying to raise capital. I'm at the end of my runway, and I'm trying to raise capital right now." I'm like, "Are you like about to close?" They're like, no, we just started. I'm like, "Yeah, cool. Well, uh, you might want to apply for some jobs or do something else while you're out there because these things don't happen quickly. And the reason for that is people that write big fat checks have other things to do than hurry the fuck up and give one to you. And there's a lot of there's things that are certain things are meant to go quickly, and some things take time for a reason. And even though we don't like it." Raising money from investors is one of those things. They want to get to know you. They want to see what happens. And right now, amidst changes in the economic climate, uh, there's a wait and see attitude on a lot of stuff. How are you going to bounce back? What? How? How? How is your character going to be defined when things are tough? When everything's going well, well, hey, everything's going well. It's I'm more concerned about what you're going to do when it's not going well. And what's your ability to deal with that, adapt and do a lot of different stuff. So yeah, well, overall, I mean, I, I think the thing, the thing I, did you have another, a closing comment? Well, I said that, that's a really good point. I mean, people think um, that, you know, it, because your business is running well or things are going really well, that everything's great. Well, it's when things aren't going well, when you really gauge yourself and see how you, how you act under something like that. So I think that's important too. Um, and you also wrapped up what I was saying about luck. I, you know, it's almost insulting to tell an entrepreneur that they're, you're proud of them because they're so lucky. You're like, no, I fucking work my ass off. I'm not lucky. Like I, yeah. I ground my ass off on this thing. Dude, people say that to me a lot. They're like, dude, you're so lucky. You've got all this stuff going on. And I'm like, I did not feel lucky last week when I worked 110 hours. Right. Yeah, I didn't feel lucky when I woke up at three in the morning wondering if I was going to go broke, if I was crazy, or if all of my decisions up to this point were wrong. Yep. No, it's not luck. It's not yeah. luck. I mean, it's, it's really not. I mean, and, and that's the thing. And, you know, there's, and there's people right now, oh, well, they're lucky because of this, 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 or that. And, and 
they locked into it because of COVID. Like, no, these are people that were preparing something. And they, they saw a vision. They had a dream. They wanted to do something. Now, speaking of vision, one thing I've learned from this podcast is I need to get online and probably get a lot of my past photos taken out. So <laughs> yes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start chasing that down. Thanks again, Jason. I'll see you next time, buddy. Sounds great, man. Startup Hustles brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Make sure you reach down and hit that subscribe button, then come find us on Instagram. See you next time.